Somebody said to me right before the service started this morning, someone I have a good relationship with, so if they're in here, don't be offended, it's fine. I knew you were joking, but they said, make sure it's interesting this morning. So it's gonna be interesting because I, yesterday I had no voice, and that was okay, because I knew that if God wanted uh, you to hear this message this morning, that he would give me some voice, and that you would hear through uh, the, the gurgling and the, the roughness of my voice this morning. So today we are continuing in our, ser- our series called Do I Need to Know This? We are working through the book of Romans, and so you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. And with that, I'm going to pray uh, before we start. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for our time together. I thank you that we can meet freely in this place to sing your praises, the truth of the words that the worship team led us in this morning as we prepare our hearts to hear from you. God, thank you for this chapter in Romans. So much truth packed into it, God. Would you just open our, uh, our hearts and our minds to even just grasp hold of one thing this morning, God, in your name. Amen. Uh, So let's do a little recap. We find ourselves in chapter 8. We've done seven weeks in Romans, so it might be your first week here. So I just want to make sure that you are uh, up up to speed as we get into today's message. Uh, The Apostle Paul, one of the most influential leaders in the early church, is writing this letter. He played a crucial role in spreading uh, the gospel to the Gentiles, which were non-Jewish people during the first century. His missionary journeys took him all throughout the Roman Empire, where he started over a dozen churches. And Paul is a little bit of an overachiever. Out of 27 books in the New Testament, he wrote 13 or 14, uh, depending on who you talk to. At the time of writing this letter to the Romans, he is in the city of Corinth. He's on his third missionary journey, and he is writing this letter to an established church in the city of Rome. In this letter, Paul is driving home some of the major themes that you will find throughout a lot of his letters. And while it's not the first of the few letters that Paul writes to specific churches, this letter does contain the most detailed explanation of these ideas. The letter of Romans lives in our Bibles right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and it kind of lays out a foundation uh, for the rest of the New Testament. If you catch what Romans is saying, you will see those threads throughout the rest of the New Testament. Paul takes the stories of Jesus and his disciples and pairs it with the Old Testament to explain these deep theological truths and this overarching story that stretches throughout the Bible. And so for the last seven weeks, we've been working through this book of the Bible and we find ourselves today in Romans chapter 8. Now some consider Romans chapter 8 to be one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, It's not that it's more inspired than any of the other books or chapters in the Bible, but the scope and the depth and the practicality of the chapter makes it stand out among the rest. There is so much truth packed into Romans 8. And with all that's packed into one chapter, as I read Romans 8 over and over again, figuring out what God wanted me to preach on this morning. Just one word, just one word kept popping out as I read through the chapter. But more on that in a moment. 
For as long as I can remember, I've wanted to be a dad. I can remember being young and thinking about it and thinking like, hey, it'd be nice to have a wife and have kids and all that comes with that. And it's an easy thing to dream about or think about when you're younger and you see other people having kids and growing their families. It's an easy statement to make and believe when it's just a thought and an idea. I think I'd like to be a dad one day. Yeah, I could teach my kid all these fun things. What Saturday morning traditions will we have? Maybe they'll even think I'm funny for at least a couple of years. But just saying it, just thinking it, or knowing it could happen in the future is different than it actually happening. There is a point where the situation moves from being an intellectual idea to being a daily experienced reality. There's a point where the situation moves from being an intellectual idea to being a daily experienced reality. There's an obvious switch that happens when my wife, Melody, finally became pregnant. All of a sudden, there's a host of questions, information, decisions, and things to, to consider. Things I once thought that future Sam could deal with are now happening, and now every day I'm starting to think about and calculate the impact of this thing happening in our lives, this little one entering our family. How will this change my habits and my routines? What established rhythms do Melody and I have that will have to change or be altered? What things will I have to minimize or cut out of my own day? What traditions do I want to start with my new family of three? And what wisdom or truth do I want to impart to my son? It's no longer a fleeting thought or something that can be quickly pushed aside by the next thought or responsibility or decision. This now becomes my ever-present and daily reality. And I think as Christians, we can actually fall into the opposite, where the opposite is true. Where once we were filled with awe and reverence and times overwhelmed by what we read and experience through God's word. Now we allow verses and passages that should move us to action and appreciation. They seem to have less impact than they did before. And the danger is that our faith becomes something we intellectually ascribe to or would absolutely say that we believe, but it's not always something that we consistently are considering or calculating or reckoning with how those things influence our lives. And so today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, and just to kick it off, we're going to read just one verse out of this packed chapter, and it's this verse, Romans eight eighteen. It says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Out of all the words in Romans chapter 8, the word that I couldn't shake was this word, consider. Now the Greek word for this is logizomai. So turn to somebody near you and say logizomai. And now turn to your least favorite neighbor and say logizomai. 
Sometimes our English language is so bland and it doesn't do the best job at conveying the actual meaning or motivation of the original word or intent. A word like consider in verse 18 could easily be glossed over. And logizomai here is not merely thinking about or considering it, it goes deeper, suggesting that someone should be calculating or estimating. Logizomai is used 40 times in the New Testament, and Paul uses it 19 times in the book of Romans. Paul's consistent use of this word suggests that we should actually know the reason why he considered, he continues to use this word, consider. Paul is compelling us to move from the occasional casual thoughts to making it a habit of considering the truth and the facts about what God has done and will do for us. It should compel us to consider in a reflective and calculated way. He uses this word in Romans 6, verse 11, says, so you too consider, logizomai, yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. After the first five chapters of Romans, which are also packed with truth and deep theological uh, meaning in Romans, this, verse 11 in chapter 6, is the first major command that Paul says to the Romans. And he is saying, take these five chapters packed with truth and consider and calculate and reckon what this truth means to you. Paul is compelling us to continually count the fact that God has actually done what he said he will do. Continually count on the fact that God, if God said it, that he meant it, and therefore he did it. Reckoning is not merely believing a statement, but instead living based on the fact that it is true. It's a calculated process of considering the facts about God and his promises, believing what God said is true, and acting on that belief. For Paul, considering, reckoning, and calculating his belief led even to the point that he would stake his own life on this truth. So why, Sam? Why this one word nestled in verse 18? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be, be revealed to us. When I first read over this very famous chapter, I, of course, like many, glossed over this verse. For someone who's been a Christian their whole life, who is a pastor, who loves Jesus, who believes God's word is true, well, of course. Well, of course there's something better for us. Of course the hope of heaven will outweigh what I'm going through in my present life. Could Paul write anything more obvious in this verse? And yet, as I read this chapter again and again, I got caught on this word, consider. It's there for a purpose. It has meaning. The reason Paul can write a statement like this to the Romans is because he has significantly considered the things of God in a detailed and logical manner. He has reasoned with it. He has pondered it. He has experienced it. And now he draws conclusions about it. Don't forget that Paul was once a Pharisee and by his own omission in Philippians was faultless under the Old Testament laws. The guy knew his Bible. 
He knew it on an intellectual level, and then he had an experience with Jesus that moved what he knew about the Bible from his head to his heart. Faith in God, even in Paul's case, will never have all the answers, it would, it would, or it would never be categorized as faith. And yet Paul is saying, by using the word logizomai repeatedly, is that our faith is deepened, strengthened, and propelled by the consistent logical consideration of God's truth. Our faith is deepened, strengthened, and propelled by the consistent logical consideration of God's truth. For me, this message goes deeper. Please don't hear this this morning, that all I'm saying is that you should read your Bible more. I can read any book, but I'm not considering it or wrestling with the content. It just sort of exists. And the truth of God cannot just exist. It needs to lead to action rather than the simple intellectual assent of God's truth. So this is why I'm excited about this chapter today because I want to go through the chapter. I want to point out some other truth that Paul writes down as key things for us to consider. Now, for those of you, you may be here today, it's your first Sunday, your first time in a church, your first time uh, seeing a guy in a button-up shirt give a big speech from the front. I would just ask you to listen to these things. God's word is alive and active. It has something for everyone. There might be one word, it might be one statement that makes you leave here and think more or ask more questions. There may be those of you who have a relationship with God who have grown up in the church, but maybe you've moved from considering to just intellectual assent or just knowing things. Would you listen to the truth in chapter 8 today and think about how it impacts your life? To me, to properly consider anything means to, allowing, to allow ourselves as much information as possible. If anybody else has coffee, now's the time to take a sip. <laughs> Think of it this way. Melody and I are having a baby. I've never had to buy a stroller or a crib or a tiny, itty-bitty, cute little mattress. I've never had to buy any of this stuff. So what do I do? I pull out my tiny, fancy pocket computer, and I go on Google, and I search for what's the best, let's say, car seat for 2022. Hundreds of searches come up on my phone. What do I do? I, I click on the first link. Do I just buy the first thing that someone tells me to buy in an article? No, I read more. I look at reviews. I ask my friends who have had kids. Um, I, I, make, I make all of these things to come to a conclusion. And then I ask my wife and she tells me what we're going to buy. <laughs> because she's already figured it out. So that's fine. That's fine. As long as there's something for my kid to sit in, it doesn't, it's fine. But in any case, there's a process. I can't just read about these things and ingest pages of reviews and pros and cons and then walk away and not actually buy a car seat or do something about it. Eventually, there's a calculated, calculated decision made and acted upon based on my findings. And so in light of all of that, listen. Listen to what Paul highlights in Romans chapter 8, consider the promises, consider the evidence, ask your questions, share your concerns. I love saying this to my students all the time. God is not scared by your questions. 
He's not afraid of your doubts. He is honestly okay with you wrestling with the unique and counterculture way in which he is calling all of us to live our lives. But at least, at least hear him out. At least consider his side, what God has to say to you through Paul's letter. So we're going to go through a few more verses in Romans 8 now. Romans 8 verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. We've talked a lot over the last few weeks about the law and grace, the difference between the law and, and what God wants, and the law would want nothing more than to find you and judge you for something you've done wrong or something you're not living up to. And yet God will never, ever condemn you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. God is judging us on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. And God would never condemn Jesus, so he will never condemn those who are seen by God as being in Christ. So how do you consider this statement? How does this freedom in Christ affect your day-to-day life? Romans 8.11, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, I read that again. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. What a promise. What a picture. Paul paints this beautiful picture that the same spirit who assisted in what we would all intellectually assent as believers to a miraculous death and resurrection of Jesus now lives within us. But how often do we consider, how often do we calculate the implications of having that same spirit living in us? How do our actions and our thoughts reflect this beautiful gift that God has given to us? Romans 8, 15 to 17 For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we, we are God. That's fine. You can laugh at me. It's good. We are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. We have been adopted into God's family, called sons and daughters and children of God. And I can only imagine what I am going to be willing to do for my own child. And the God of the universe uses that same language to talk about his relationship with you and me. How does our faith reflect that kind of close-knit relationship with God? Romans 8:23 Not only that but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits To the first century Jewish people who read this verse they would have had visions of the first fruits of harvest the people who had to bring the fruit, first fruits of the harvest and it was regarded both as a first installment to God but also a pledge of final delivery of the whole, meaning that God demanded the first fruits of their harvest, they would bring that, saying, God, we know that you have blessed us with this, and we give you everything, whatever you need, we will give you. It was an act of worship and faith on the part of the Jewish people to acknowledge that God would provide everything that they needed. 
So to say that the Spirit has come as the first fruits for us means that even though we are waiting for a day when God will reveal his full glory, that we will experience it in all fullness, that God's children, as God's children, we have already received a massive inheritance, a first installment in the gift of his presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is also our guarantee that there is much more to come. How do we consider this great inheritance, the gift of the Spirit as we live out our daily lives? Can you think of the last time that you would attribute an action or a thought or a conversation to the work of the Spirit in your life? Yesterday I was sitting at home working on the baby's room, on my computer going over my sermon, listening to myself talk and sounding ridiculous. But the whole day I had no doubt that whatever I sounded like, that if God wanted me to preach, that I would preach. And that was me attributing the power of the Holy Spirit because it's not about me, it's about God's word and God speaking to you this morning. And so that was a time, but that, that, it's not like every day I'm thinking about the Spirit as I'm loading my dishwasher or as I'm you know, cleaning the house or I'm, or I'm you know, driving to work. There's, but when was the last time that you attributed an action or a thought or a conversation to the work of the Spirit in your life? In the same way, verse 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Where am I here? Oh, here. God is not a far-off entity expecting us to honor him with our blind faith. He is not setting ridiculous standards and leaving us to struggle to reach those lofty expectations. He is near to us, he has called us his children. He has given us an inheritance already found in the Spirit who not only lives within us, but is willing to guide and direct and comfort and communicate and help us in our daily lives. When was the last time in a moment of weakness that your first thought was to consider the actions and the abilities of the Spirit? Verse 31, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? The word if here translated from a Greek word that indicates a fulfilled condition, not a possibility. He isn't really posing a question. He's making a statement. The verse is phrased as a question, but Paul's intention is to communicate an unchanging truth. Again, this is another verse that conveys such freedom and comfort and something we would immediately understand and subscribe to and tell our friends about, but not something we may actually consider each and every day. Verse 32. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? God cares about each and every person, his creation, so much that he would give up his own son to die on the cross for us. So why is it so difficult to just give every part of our lives over to God? I'm not saying it's easy, but as we consider these verses, he's willing to give up everything to have a relationship with you and I. Because whatever we need or ask for is going to be worth far less to him than the eternal sacrifice of his son. But is it something we consider 
Is it something we calculate? Is it something we reckon with in our own lives? Last set of verses here. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neil made a great point as me and him were talking about all kinds of stuff this week. As Christians, we can often find ourselves saying things like, I just don't feel close to God, or I haven't heard God speak to me in a while, or I I feel spiritually empty. But what Neil and I were talking about is that there's nothing that can, as as Christians, there's nothing that can separate us from the, the love of God, and God is near to us. And so do we consider that maybe it's us who have taken a step back? Maybe it's us who haven't approached him or have approached him with closed hands, not ready to embrace what he is offering to us. These verses are pretty clear about the stance that God takes with us. So let's talk about the truth of logizomai. Let's go back to that verse in the middle of chapter eight and just wrestle with something for a second. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. We could talk about so many situations over the past two years or even things that are happening in this very moment around our world. And I do believe that this verse speaks to the fact that God has something better for all those who have faith in him. And it will greatly outweigh anything that we have to navigate right now in the present. But the Bible has never been a book that calls us only to intellectual assent. It pokes and prods us to take action, to stand up, to stand out for, what, for a God that has literally promised us everything. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is where the truth of logizomai starts to take shape when we move past our heart and allow our relationship with God to affect the way we consider the world around us. I have this project going on in the baby's room. I've been thinking about it for a while. It's the closet of all things. I want my son's closet to be cool. I want it to be functional. I want it to look nice, even though 99% of the time there'll be a door closed and no one will see it. So I've had this plan in my mind, and all of a sudden I started to look at the cost of lumber. Has anybody seen the cost of lumber lately? Makes me reconsider what I want to do in that closet. Makes me count the cost of what I'm planning. Makes me wonder whether it's worth following through with. And in Luke 14, Jesus turns to this large crowd that's been following him, watching him do miracles, hearing him talk, and he says this. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king doesn't first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20? 
The cost of following Christ with our whole heart, soul, and mind should be taken into consideration. Jesus is not saying to the crowd, you know, saying this to the crowd intentionally so that people will turn away. Because Jesus would look at that crowd longing to have relationship with each and every one of them. But instead he's raising the bar. He's calling them to a higher standard. He's laying all the cards out, showing them that following him will indeed cost them something. And if you are following what God wants in your life, if you are considering, calculating, and reckoning what he says, then your belief and your relationship with God may put you at odds with the thinking of our culture. It may force you to see things from a different perspective. It may force you to take different actions or steps than those around you. And quickly, our obedience can lead to suffering of one form or another. Considering what Paul has to say, considering all of the verses in chapter 8 that we looked at, the thing that I thought of was that my greatest calling is not to be a dad or a husband or a pastor, but my greatest calling is to be in a relationship with God that I'm considering each and every day. And for that relationship to then inform the kind of husband, friend, brother, son, uncle, coworker, and pastor that I should be. And my relationship is deepened and strengthened and propelled when I actually take time to consider and to calculate and to reckon with the truth of God's word. Now, Romans 8 is packed with a lot of spiritual nuggets, but if Romans 8 isn't compelling enough, there's a whole Bible full of truth to make you wonder. And the beauty of God's word, it literally has something for everyone. It has history, poetry, prophecy, parables, deep theological sections for you nerds, super practical chapters, stories. The Bible is full of truth that we can reach at at any moment and in any season. And so this is my charge to you today as we're closing. How is your life being transformed? Not as you read. Please don't take this message as you should read your Bible more. How is your life being transformed, not as you read, but as you consider God's word? How is your life being transformed as you consider God's word? Here's the kicker. God isn't asking you to do anything that he hasn't done already. Do you think that he hasn't already considered, calculated, and mulled over his decision to reach out to you? Of course he did, because he chose to send his son to die on a cross. That wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision for him. That was calculated and considered and mulled over decision to say that you and I are worth him sending his son. And he hasn't seen anything or heard anything or thought anything about you that would make him regret the decision to put Jesus on that cross over and over again to have a relationship with you. I'm gonna call the worship team up as I just close here. Kyle and the team are gonna play a song now called Son of Suffering. And the first verse goes like this. Oh, the perfect son of God in all his innocence, here walking in the dirt with you and me. He knows what living is. He's acquainted with our grief. And in the chorus it says, so praise the one who would reach for me. Hallelujah to the son of of suffering. Hear the words of this song this morning.
consider the truth of Romans 8 and even the truth that's in this song. Let's pray as we close. God, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for a voice to preach. Thank you for the truth in Romans 8. Thank you for the ability that we can now respond. God, I pray for each person here and those watching online that something in Romans 8 tugged at their heart today. Even if it tugged to have more questions, to ask somebody to consider something. God, would we move from just reading your Bible to check it off a list? Would we read your word to consider and then to use that in our daily lives, God? We thank you for how much you love us and you care for us. In your name, amen.